What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Amit Sankaran. Amit is the CEO of Religion of Sports, a sports media production company co-founded by Tom Brady, Michael Strahan, and filmmaker and entrepreneur Gotham Chopra. We talk about the increase in demand for sports programming in the streaming era, how the company will expand after raising a $50 million Series B, what makes Tom Brady and Michael Strahan elite at business, and much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Amit, and I hope you do also. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've been wearing a Whoop for several years now, and it has made a massive difference in my life. It's the only tech product that I wear 24-7, so it's pretty cool to see people like Patrick Mahomes, Rory McIlroy, Michael Phelps, and Justin Bieber wearing one also. Whoop automatically measures your respiratory rate, oxygen level, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. Sure, it might sound complex, but Whoop interprets the data for you, so it's easy to digest and actionable. And now, their 4.0 is officially back in stock and shipping in real time. But here's the best part. To celebrate that and Father's Day coming up, Whoop is offering 15% off and free shipping when you use code Joe at checkout. So go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Joe, J-O-E at checkout to save 15% and get free shipping. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is Element. I've been focusing on my hydration levels for the past few months, and I've learned that chugging water isn't the most important thing, but replenishing electrolytes is. When you sweat, the primary electrolyte loss is sodium. Electrolytes facilitate hundreds of functions in the body, including the conduction of nerve impulses, hormonal regulation, nutrient absorption, and fluid balance. But since drinking Element, I feel more energized and experience fewer headaches and muscle cramps. It's simple. I just add it to my water every morning and I'm ready to go. No sugar, no junk. There's a reason why hundreds of pro athletes and teams across the NBA and NFL are using it also. That's because it works. And now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single serving packets free with any Element order. So go get yours at drinkelement.com slash joe. This deal is only available through my link. So make sure you go to drink, D-R-I-N-K, element, L-M-N-T, dot com, slash Joe. Next up is 8sleep. Eight 8sleep eight has dramatically improved my daily performance. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot. But now, I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have before, all thanks to my 8sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. You can add the cover to any mattress. The temperature regulation will create the optimal sleeping environment by adjusting to each side of the bed based on personalized sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature. The results are proven to be true. Clinical data shows that eight sleep users experience up to 19% increase in recovery, a 32% improvement in sleep quality, and 34% more deep sleep. But it's not just me who sleeps on an eight sleep. The product is so good that it's garnered the attention of CEOs, Olympians, UFC champions, and even the Mercedes Formula One racing team. So go to 8sleep.com slash Joe, that's J-O-E, to redeem an exclusive 4th of July savings and start sleeping cool this summer. 8sleep currently ships within the USA, Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU, and Australia. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, let's get into this episode. 
What's up, everyone? I'm here with Amit Sankaran, who is the CEO of Religion of Sports. For those that don't know, it's a sports media production company. Two of the co-founders are Michael Strahan and Tom Brady, among others. Amit, I'm pumped to have you on today. How are you, man? I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Of course. You guys got a lot going on. I know, I think most people know, obviously, Man in the Arena was on ESPN recently, and, and you guys co-produced that with them. That was obviously a huge success. I think you guys won an Emmy for that, so congratulations on that. But outside of that, you, you, you've obviously had some big news also around fundraising. You guys just closed a $50 million Series B round recently, at least within the last couple of weeks here. So maybe before we jump into that stuff, like let's start at the beginning a little bit around how the hell did you get involved in this? Like, where did you come from? Where did this company come from? How did it originate? Just talk me through some of that stuff. Yeah, you know, the easiest way to tell it is to tell, tell it through this, the eyes of my business partner, Gotham, and, and his background, and then I'll, I'll intersect with, with myself as well. So Gotham Chopra is, is Deepak Chopra's son, actually. So he's, he grew up in, in Boston. He's a big, you know, right now he's going crazy because the Celtics are in game six, but Boston fan. Patriots and so forth. And he's, he's grown up in this world of, of, through his dad, spirituality. And when he was young teenager, he talks about how, you know, everything his dad would come home and talk about in the context of spirituality, he lived and felt and breathed in sports. And so he would go to the game and be like, man, I don't have anything in common with these people. We're all on the same page right now, or, you know, sees the cathedral that is kind of the Boston garden and so forth. And so that seed was planted in him early. He became a filmmaker and started making movies, documentaries. And then about five or six years ago, maybe a little bit more, he made Kobe Bryant's movie Muse, got to know Kobe really well. And that was a story, if you've seen it on Showtime, of resilience. It was, it was Kobe got injured. Kobe and Gotham got to know each other. I think Kobe was in Europe at the time. And then they basically connected and said, after the injury, you know, we got to tell the story. This is, you, you were looking for an arc. Here's the arc. And and that was a story. It was everyone seemed to know Kobe, but then that was a story of coming back. And what that film did in a lot of ways, it start. It was kind of one of the first versions of what we see now, you know, throughout across you know the content we produce, but everyone else as well. Which is here's an inside look of this person that you think you know, and here's a story of what makes him great through the context of his comeback with his injury. And you know, later Gotham had gotten to know Tom and Michael, who you referenced. And they produced a show called Religion of Sports, which was one six-hour show on, at the time, AT&T's audience network, which highlighted all these crazy one-hour stories across the world to dirt track racing in the South, Scotland, Celtic and Ranger, the rivalry and how it connects back to religion, all these things. And so my background is I, I grew up in, in, in Houston and Texas. I, I was a you know, big sports fan my whole life as well. Went to UT. I'm a huge Longhorns fan. I've been in business most of my life. I, I went to I went consulting. I went to Columbia for grad school. I met Gotham about 15 years ago. I was actually um, at a family office investing in businesses, building them, and found that you know what I loved the most about that whole experience after you know nearly two decades of consulting and working and and investing is is the building part. And Gotham and I reconnected at that moment when when we'd set up that show, and that's how we kind of pieced together this version and pitched Tom and Michael on. Great, you're part of the show, but this thing. This is a movement. Let's build this as a media enterprise and let's think about all the different ways we can impact people through the content. And how obvious was it to you back then, right? I don't know exactly what year this is, if you can tell us that, but about sound, 17. 17, right? So it's it's several yeah. years ago. And this has become obvious at this point, right? That scripted, unscripted, anything kind of sports commentary or sports content is very popular. There's huge demand for it, not only from media companies, but also even sports books now, right? Like there's, there's just demand everywhere that we see for this kind of stuff. 
Was it obvious in 2017? Well, I mean, I always tell the story now to our investors and board. I, I go back and look at those early decks and look at what did I project for market of unscripted back then overall. And we were probably 50% under. I mean, we, we thought it would grow, but we, we missed it by at least 50% in terms of five-year rate. So, so we, we saw the trends, but obviously didn't see as fast the growth as fast as it actually has materialized. Building on that, what we did see for sure was as linear starts to transition and has tra- had transitioned at that point to streaming, more and more obvious growth was happening in streaming, you started to see a lot of niche programming emerge. You started to see, you know, I think I don't remember if that was the time or right, right after that, but Tiger King. And like all these weird elements of content that you wouldn't see on NBC or, or ABC, at least when I was growing up, this type of programming started to find a home, started to find an audience. And so we started piecing things together. At the time, Players Tribune was, was, was probably the most popular sports media platform at the time. And, and, and we felt like we had a, a quite a distinct take relative to where they were going at the time, primarily because of this, which is we're leaning into creativity. We're leaning into the actual art here. And, and that might mean longer form. It might mean things that take longer to produce, but it's aligned with what we saw, some of the trends that were materialized. Yeah. And that brings me to my next question, which is like, how is the business structure today? I'm, I'm assuming it sounds like most of it is still unscripted content, but I think you guys do some in the audio space and, and other areas also. Maybe just talk me through how the, the business is set up today and the avenues that you guys go down. Yeah, we're 80% unscripted. So we're, that's, that's primarily what we do. It's a bread and butter. We have 17 un, unscripted productions going on right now. And that ranges from very bread and butter for us, the type of man in the arena type projects where networks are greenlining things to us co-investing with talent or teams in some projects that we've got, and then us just underwriting on our own, some other projects. So that's most of our work, our team, and that runs the gamut. That team is underneath Gotham, creative director, developers, people bringing in ideas, finding IP, all the way to producers, editors, people making great content, and a lot of freelancers there that we work with. And then about 20%, we have have scripted. Ted Lasso is a North Star type show to go build, um, but we have scripted. We have four projects in the market right now, all four with partners who are great scripted chops. One of them we've announced with Skydance, who, of course, Mission Impossible and many other things they've done. And then we have audio, to your point. And, and audio, we, we've, we've launched four. We launched four narrative podcasts last year. One was nominated for Podcast of the Year called False Idol, which was, with, which was kind of an in-depth look at Oscar Pistorius and that story from a different point of view. That's the type of thing we're leaning into in the audio space. So that, those are kind of the, the three main main areas we're focusing on. And what is the incentive, I guess, to focus most of the business towards unscripted? Is it some easiness to create? Is it some level of the financial capital that's being put into that space? Like, why are you guys going so heavy into there versus other areas? I think it's, well, it starts with what are we good at? I, th- I think we also have learned over the last few years some, some things that we tried and, and, and haven't worked. We're not a you know social media content house that can, you know, while we all see the trend right around around what's happening in TikTok and many other places and how that actually is taking timeshare away from people, that's not our that's not our bread and butter. I think Unscripted is our bread and butter. Gotham has grown up in that world. We have a deep network of current team members, freelancers. We feel like that's our real differentiation in the market. If there's one differentiation we have, it's we are co-led. My business partner Gotham is a creator at heart, and we feel like if you look at other companies in the marketplace right now that we may be competing with. There's very few that can say that. And, and that attracts, I think, talent. I think it attracts investment from, from networks, investment from brands. There's a lot of interest and it all stems from that. And I think that goes to kind of answering your question of why we lean into that. And then I think beyond that, you know, while we see the market 
in scripted and audio. I think for us, it's a test and continue to iterate on what's working. In audio as well, there's some things on the, on the frequent audio version that would be amazing for us to lean into. But again, strength is about storytelling. That's what we've attracted more and more people in that world. And so we're, we're building that out as a capability, leaning into the storytelling and the differentiation there versus trying to compete with a blue wire or someone like that who's churning out great, but volume of content. Yeah. Gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, you mentioned like TikTok and other platforms like that. Is that something you guys think about often? Like it feels like at least on my standpoint, and I think the numbers show this to a large degree, like short form video is, is obviously becoming much more popular. A lot of these platforms, I think TikTok and, and YouTube now have billions of active users each month that are doing these, these short term type videos. How do you guys think about in the context of your business? Cause obviously most of this is still longer form and, and documentary type style stuff. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. It keeps me up at night when I'm not working on, on, on all the, the core day-to-day -day business stuff. I think the thing, well, a, a few things. One is I think you are a great example, you, your brothers, of creators kind of owning their own ability to talk, community, build their own audience and drive their agenda. And athletes are doing that as well, right? Draymond's a good example, JJ Reddick now. So that trend I think is going nowhere. I think it's, that trend is going to accelerate like crazy. The way we think about it is, when we partner with athletes, what we're doing is enhancing their brand. So I think it's less about us saying, hey, how do we compete with you while you're on TikTok or something? It's how do we use our ability, again, going back to what is our differentiation creativity, to enhance your brand. So it's not just about how does ESPN retain more customers. It's that and how does, in this example, we're launching something with Draymond Green and Amazon. How does Draymond use that to amplify his voice, his positioning, what he wants to say to the world? as well. And we think about that as an ecosystem. And so in that world, you know, at scale, you think about TikTok as just an amplification of the things that we can do and how we can help contribute to what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, it feels, I mean, you use the examples of Draymond, obviously, JJ Reddick and others, but it feels like that's just getting started, right? Like, I think some people look at it and they're like, oh, these athletes are taking over. And it's like, no, nah, this is really just the tip of, of the iceberg, I think, at least when it comes to some of this stuff, because this is content, and you know this better than anyone, that fans have craved and individuals have craved forever, right? It's just never really been existing. And to see someone, I tweeted it out the other day, and it was like, win, lose, or draw, Draymond plays well, he plays bad. Like, it's still pretty damn cool to see him go back to the hotel room and record a podcast, right? Like, that just wasn't a thing. And you're hearing it straight from a player who played in the game 30 minutes after, an hour after, directly his thoughts and his opinions on what happened, right? And like, that's totally different. And you see the same thing. I mean, JJ Redick, it seems like a clip goes viral of him every week of him going at it with Stephen A on first take. And like, these athletes just have a unique perspective. But I do think to your point, it probably gets undersold to a degree, the amount of legitimacy that you guys can add, right? And that brand building that you guys add, where you, you partner with someone like a Draymond Green, and you're able to put together a legitimate production. Because you mentioned me as an example, like I know this better than anyone. It's it's pretty damn hard to create content, create content consistently, and then create consistently good content, right? And it is it is difficult for me. It's much harder for an athlete. So I would be curious, like, where do you think that heads, that space? Do you think like every athlete essentially is going to have a podcast at some point? Everyone's going to be creating? Or is this kind of like maybe the top two, three, five percent of people do that? I think it's moving quicker and quicker. I mean, you see, I saw today, Omaha and ESPN announced something with what casino was it? I can't remember the casino now, but Caesars. But yeah, Caesars to do to do Caesars. So I think I think it goes nowhere, but up in the near term. I think what happens, my prediction would be what happens is 
you know, 1%, just like anything else, 1% stand out from the crowd. And I think a subset of those actually build media companies. I, I think there's a huge opportunity. And it's different from the way Tom and Michael are involved with us or the way LeBron built his. I think it's with them at the center as an engine of driving those, those enterprises. Um, so I think that's where that itself goes in a very positive way. It's, it's interesting. When we talk to almost every athlete, all of them now have production companies. They have people. And what that means to them is someone's been following them around with a camera. And, and social media, but then also archival. and all. So everyone has that. What we found really interesting, and this started you know, all the way back with Tom, with Steph, who we worked with a lot, with almost every athlete we work with, those people actually want to work with us a lot as well because they all have aspirations to say, what else can we do outside of this? And so now we've got this network of almost not only the athletes, but many production companies and people around the country that have stemmed from those relationships to say, Hey, we have something happening, you know, in LA with Russell Westbrook. What, what is that team working on right now? And how do we, you know, either pull in Russell or not, but engage them? And so I think it's an interesting evolution that's in some ways unpredictable outside of what I described from my mind of, of how that ecosystem evolves. I just know that if we stay ahead and are able to deliver something in the top, inside the top 1% in terms of quality creatively at varying mediums and also varying lengths of, of content we produce will be able to be additive to the system. Have you ever seen the documentary, Conor McGregor's documentary? I, I think it's on Netflix, maybe somewhere else called Notorious. Yeah. 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 That that was always one that shocked me when I, it, it's several years old now at this point. And, and obviously maybe people's opinions on him have changed for the good or, or, or worse at this point. But that one shocked me because of the amount of footage that he had from like way back in the day, right? Like there yeah. was footage, he was a nobody. Right. He was, I mean, everyone knows the story. He was collecting government checks. He was, you know, he's, there's a scene I remember where he's sitting in his bathroom and he's doing an interview after he won like an amateur fight and he's screaming, I'm the best in the world and all this stuff. And it's like, that's crazy, right? Just the amount of foresight to know that you're going to need some of this footage or, or at least be recording it in real time. And, and maybe he didn't think, you know, record a documentary, but it speaks to your point around kind of how everyone is now doing this. Everyone is collecting footage. Everyone is recording. Everyone has a team. I can't, I can't announce who it is, but we, we just signed a deal with an NBA player and he's in his first few years. So he's, you know, what, early 20s at best. Yeah, probably early 20s. And he's got 900 hours of footage and it goes back to five years old. I mean, it's amazing. You know, that's the world we live in now. And it's super, it's going to be super compelling when the right narrative is put together. And I, I don't think that's it. That, that trend is not changing either. Is there anyone in the production space that you guys look to on sports side or non-sports side that is like someone you guys, you know, your North Star and you point to them, you say, hey, they do a really good job. If we can, if we can capture kind of some of the value that they're doing or, or replicate some of it that we'll be doing all right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, there's a lot of comps that we, that we love to look at. I mentioned Skydance. I mean, in the scripted and animation world, bringing in John Lasseter's, that's, a, that's an amazing storytelling machine. You know, imagine and those folks, amazing uh, what all the different work that they've done and what their teams would be involved with across the spectrum. I think more closer in, I mean, th there's one-off things that I pick from, you know, Spring Hill, who we know well, we partner with them all the time, worked on the show Greatness Code, two seasons with them on Apple Plus. But as they've extended into scripted and as they've, as they've thought about how to leverage their relationships with athletes to build out, you know, more, more and more brand recognition has been great to see. I mean, we look at what Candle Media is doing and, you know, their acquisition of Hello Sunshine and what Hello Sunshine has done, if your listeners aren't familiar, around building a book list basically around Reese Witherspoon 
and their ability to then cultivate that as community. And so there's a lot of things that I think we can pull in that doesn't really deviate from the DNA and, the, and what I described, but it enhances the value of the brand and a lot of the things we're trying to do. It feels like you guys picked two pretty good athletes to partner with, right? In, in Tom Brady and, and Michael Strahan on this, not only because of who they are, but I always, you mentioned Spring Hill. I always use that as an example because I, I know those guys somewhat well. And, and my whole thing is, right, you can get the athlete. There's a number of athletes that are superstar level. LeBron is obviously that, and, and your guys are in a similar capacity. But the athlete also has to be willing to put in the work from the business perspective. And it feels to me like like Tom and Michael are that way also, where you see them very active on the entrepreneurial side and, and really putting effort and and not only money, but effort into projects and time. That usually makes a big difference, I think, right? Because Spring Hill, I, I think LeBron is still probably the largest shareholder, but they were valued, you know, mid 700 million last year. It's going to be one of the biggest financial wins of his career when and if he does, you know, find some liquidity from that. But I think ultimately it speaks to his willingness to actually go and build these companies. And we, we didn't always historically see that in sports. It was more centered around cash, right? What kind of partnerships can I do? How can I endorse these products? How can I get paid cash? And we've shifted, it feels like from these athletes, because to be fair, contracts have gotten bigger to a, to a point and people are making more money and they have more flexibility, but people are much more long-term thinking. Am I, am I looking at Tom and, and Michael in the right light here? Is that similar to kind of how you feel internally? Yeah, 100% the right way that we felt. I mean, the whole thing from the beginning was not a quick turnaround flip opportunity where we would commercialize against them, for example, and then try to turn this into something that went into some other home. This was about building a brand and they recognized up front that meant years and it meant, you know, all the things they've done, they've been active board members, you know, they're not obviously involved day to day, but we've had two Tom projects now with Tom versus time and man, the arena, you know, Michael has been on multiple late night shows and you know, has brought Gotham on GMA. I mean, there's so many ways, you know, in front of camera and also behind the scenes, they've been supportive of the network you talked about. And I think that that is, that is the way, and, you know, you've seen Tom and I think you profiled Tom, some of his investments and some of the things he does outside, right. That, you know, between our company, but also autograph and, and, and Brady brand and all the other things that he's been focused on. I mean, for him, it's about, he's got a great, they both have great advisors around them who think about things long-term and think about windows of when you're relevant. Michael is the, is the, is, I would say the king, the North star of, how do you stay relevant as an athlete after you've retired? And you can't, I mean, I can't even count how many athletes that we've worked with or others who've said, hey, at some point, you know, I would love to talk to Michael about ideas. And, and it's all about that. Uh, he's, he's, the best to, he's the best to ever do it in my mind when it comes to that, right? Like yeah. guys who have just captured the spotlight and, and maintained it after their playing career. And it's not like he, he wasn't a quarterback. You know, it's even more difficult when you're not the quarterback. Tom probably has a, an advantage in not only being the greatest quarterback of all time, but a quarterback in general. 100%. Yeah. And, and Michael, Michael's the most giving around that too. He wants to give advice because he wants others to also build that up. And he's, he's very passionate about, about supporting other athletes who are, who are in that stage of life. I love it. I love it. So you guys raised $50 million, I think. That's right. What are you going to do with the money? Well, look, I, I described the mission in some detail. The, the thing that I didn't talk a lot about is, is in this media space, right? IP ownership makes a big difference. And so having a library, you know, which starts small, but then starts to accrue over time is a playbook that's not new. Go back to Viacom and, and, and you know, Sherry Redstone is an active investor and board member and, and advisor has built this, but, but there, you know, having a library matters very much unscripted and I think increasingly unscripted as well. And so for us, the capital allows us to, 
flexibility at, at the beginning. I talked about how we have 17 unscripted productions. A lot of those now we're starting to underwrite and we're going to underwrite more and more ourselves, particularly when we, we know and feel very confident there's a commercial market. But underwriting, it allows us to do two things. One is, what's the right format? We don't have to say, well, Netflix wants four 40-minute episodes or Facebook Watch wants six 20-minute things right now or whatever. We will figure out the right amount of content at the right length and for the right platform and then bring that out in its best form. And that really, again, speaks to creative first and storytelling first. And the second thing is that when we're in those negotiations, we're in those conversations, this turns into a license deal. It doesn't turn into an outright sale. That's something that rights revert to us over time. And again, it goes into building that library that accrues value. So that's kind of number one. I would say it's the sub bullet underneath that, but it is, it is a two is acquisitions. There's there's companies, there's creators around the world. We're talking to a company right now internationally that produces phenomenal content in and around the world of sports, just like we do, and has great relationships with leagues that we have no access to. We you know, believe that that could be a, a great partnership and someone that we could bring into the family. And we don't think it just stops there. And, and it doesn't have to be companies. It, there's also so many great creators who are out there who have put together I mean, go look at Tribeca right now or go, go see the 30 for 30 roster of directors. I mean, there's people who have credibility in the space and just not scale. And so how can we provide the resources to them to do a lot of that? And we have the confidence by seeing on screen that they have ethos and DNA that's connected. connected. So, so that's kind of the first place. And then, of course, there's anytime you're starting to build out, there's the nuts and bolts, right? There's operations, there's actual you know, expansion of our edit bays and facilities or studio you know, some of the team members and the core team and so forth. But that's, that's what's happening at the Capitol. How are you thinking about the broader economy right now? Is any of this affecting your guys' business and kind of how you're operating today? I mean, if you, if you look at just kind of what's happening and certainly the equities market and, and so forth, you know, rates are rising and all these different things. And it, it seems and it feels, and most people believe at this point that we're headed towards a recessionary period if, if we're not already on our way. How does this impact you as, as the operator of the business? Yeah, I mean, one, one I'll say that, you know, we're not a we're not a SaaS business, so we didn't have the the ride and the multiple that, that some of these companies had. We also don't have the, the extent of the decline. I was going to say that's good now, right? Now that maybe before you <laughs> yeah, were missing out right. a little bit, you were a little jealous, but now it doesn't feel as bad. <laughs> now it doesn't feel as bad. I think the second thing is, look, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but we closed at a good time, and I think that that's really you know just got off a call with our full team where we brought on board Shamrock, who's our lead investor, to talk to our whole team, and we all talked about this. And one of the main messages was. Really, we've got the balance sheet now and we've got the ability to be patient and see this through. And from our perspective, yeah, it's not going to all be positive. There's going to probably be some of our core customers who are out there who are looking at their own CapEx, OpEx and saying, hey, we can't, we thought we could greenlight this, but we can't and so forth. But on the whole, we think it really creates an opportunity for us to say, how do we bring in projects, people, and companies and teams that we'd like to in a way that makes a lot of sense for us long-term. And so that's, that's the way we see this. We haven't seen an impact on our short-term, but our sales cycles are fairly long. I can basically tell you our 22 revenue right now. We'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm, we're building a downside scenario for sure. And then we'll, we'll see you know, how the, the next year, my 401k is getting hit a lot, a lot worse, a lot more painfully than anything else. Trust me, I am a believer in Bitcoin and that has not been fun. I joke, my mom texted or called me, left a voicemail the other day and she said, 
I don't know if you've seen Bitcoin, but it's probably a good time to average in. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I said, thank you for the, yeah, I said, thank you for the heads up. That's actually intelligent. You know, I appreciate that, but trust me, I did see it and I'm aware of what's going on. So are, are you, are you all, are you all quick question for you? Are you all hearing from athletes that are now taking salaries and checks and Bitcoins and Hey, do I, do I keep doing this or, or, or what yeah. the degree of nervousness out there? Well, it's interesting. I get that question a lot. And I would say there's, there's, you know, with anything, there's a distribution of outcomes, right? There's people that think about this differently. There's certainly guys that are are much more convicted in longer term than I think people realize. Like Saquon Barkley is a good one. He uh, allocated a meaningful portion. It was majority, if not all of his endorsement income last year towards Bitcoin, right? And I think he was doing it when it was, you know, before the big run up. So maybe mid twenties or something around there, right? You can, you can check the dates. I think he announced it publicly, but he has been thinking about this for a long time. He's acquired Bitcoin previously. And like, he is in it for the long haul. It seems talking to guys like that. And then there's other guys where you see, they come out and they announce these deals. And a lot of them are structured as partnerships, right? Where they're getting some kind of amount of cash up front to do the deal. They take a little bit of portion of their, their check or their salary in Bitcoin or another crypto or, or something like that, most likely Bitcoin. And what happens is, they're just getting exposure, right? So the way I think about this is like Odell was the perfect example. When Cash App did his deal, he got paid, I believe it was seven figures to do the deal. And he took 100% of his RAM salary. So it sounds amazing, right? His entire NFL salary is getting paid in Bitcoin. He really believes. And to an extent, maybe he does, right? But he's made, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in his career now. And it was like, you know, one or 2% of his career earnings was, was he was taking in Bitcoin. He could have converted it later on. I don't, I don't know the, you know, the specifics, but at the end of the day, if you told your financial advisor, you're one of these guys, Hey, I'm going to put 1%, 2% plus they're going to pay me even more than that in cash to do the deal. Like, okay, that probably makes sense to do. That's right. It's a different conversation than it, it's, it's a, exactly. It's a different conversation yeah. than what's out there too, because some, some people, you know, the narrative around athletes going broke is very popular and, and some people like to claim that and say that, but there's always, you know, nuance to these situations. And I think, with anything, long-term thinkers and people that are convicted on assets, whether whether you know they end up the best thing in the world or not, those long-term principles of you know just dollar-cost averaging usually tend to work out well. So, something to to look out for, but but nothing crazy, I would say. But I would be interested, like, if you could talk through how these deals work on the on the scripted side or unscripted side, because. I, w- I was always curious, right? Does does Netflix come to you or does ESPN come to you and say, hey, we need this X, Y, and Z, this many episodes, this many hours? Or are these things that you guys are thinking of finding the writers and the people to go put these together and then bringing them to the networks? Like, how does that process work? Yeah, well, both and I'd say a third, but but I'll just give you three examples. So one is, um, you know, we would have a network, a Netflix or a Facebook or an ESPN come to us and say, we want to work with this athlete. We've secured this athlete. We think you are the perfect partner. We are going to do a talent deal with them. And then we're going to do a production deal with you. And that's going to be the deal. And, and it needs to be exactly this many minutes and this many episodes. That, that happens. And we'll do that deal uh, if it makes sense with a partner and with some of our great partners. A lot of our content has, has, has come to come about that way. A second example is yeah, we, we have a relationship with an athlete. There's a story that is there to be told. But, but before we kind of get too deep, we just start almost pitching it. We know all the people who met all the buyers. If we're going to figure it out with them. Can you get over this number? And there's usually a quick conversation. We figure out if we do it, then the money kind of flows. And then we kind of make the deal with the athlete. And that's the second example. The third that we're actually really excited about is we have a deal with, you know, right now we're working with one of the most famous entrepreneurs ever, one of the famous 
most famous musician bands of all time, three different athletes. And we are underwriting or we are co-underwriting with them the investment in that content. And that could be, and then we usually create it where we both have to agree that it's the right time to take it to the marketplace. Wait, so how does that work? You guys are actually putting up capital to go and get this production made and, and completed as owners of the content? Yeah, that's right. And, and it could be, well, could, and that's where, that's where it depends on, on how much and how long. It could be that we just say, we're going to do three months of production. We're going to create a, th- a, an amazing 20 to 30 minute sizzle reel, and then we're going to take it to market. So that'll be $100,000, dollars $300,000. Or it could be that we're going to go, look, we're, we just keep doing this and it's amazing. We're going to do the full year and we're going to edit this and we're going to create all the content and then we're going to bring it out. Usually you don't go that far because, especially if it's commercial, once networks understand it's out there, if it's the right project, of course, once networks know it's out there, you can use that to you know, hopefully create a bidding war and so forth. So, so that's the one that, again, goes back to what's the use of capital. That's where, for us, we think we're in a really interesting position because we have the credibility, we have the creative team, and now we have the capital to go make some of that happen and take the bets that we think make a lot of sense. And are most of these structured, say you guys or anyone else, right? You go sell something to ESPN of the world or, or someone like that, mm-hmm. right? Are these structured where, is there a payout based on performance or it's usually a flat kind of fee relative to the content? Yeah, there's, it's usually flat. Now, within that, there's different ranges, right? Margin profiles and so forth. But usually think about it more flat. There's an old model, MAGR, that, that's out in the industry, which is more linked to like theatrical release and so forth, which is based on how well this does in the market, meaning theaters, you get a share of the back end, the upside. The issue or the challenge with streamers is they don't really have that, right? Especially especially the Netflix world. They're not going to tell you, oh, well, this thing you know, retained X amount of customers. And so therefore, we're going to give you this. We may evolve into a world where you can associate it with some version of downloads or performance, but it has not gotten there yet, at least not. For- well, I wonder too, and this is just me thinking out loud, like say you have these co-owners or co-founders of the business that have large audiences. It feels like there could be an affiliate deal there of some type, right? Where you guys aren't necessarily trying to clip, you know, dollars on signups. But at the end of the day, if you can prove that certain people are signing up for services or becoming customers for your specific piece of content, that seems probably pretty valuable. Yeah, for sure. And, I, and look, I think I think what what these teams have that we have far less of, but are trying to build a capability around is a lot of data on not just who resonates with each of their platforms, what teams by geography and so forth, but how that how that's connected. I mean, it goes back to that Netflix example from years ago where people are able, you know, their whole algorithm is based on everything you've watched. And if you've watched X number of things, they're 99% likely to be successful or whatever it is. It's the same thing with the athletes they, they pick. They know the geographies are targeting and so forth. So a lot of that, they would argue to us, yeah, yeah, great. Your content's awesome, whatever, but it's because, you, you know, it's the right person. Wait, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Basically, they'll pick an athlete that they want to build a show around or a content piece around based on the geography of customers they're trying to hit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, 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 that can happen quite a bit. I mean, if you think a little bit about, you know, use, use examples, even internationally, Sky or, or, or Hotstar in India, I mean, those demographics obviously are totally different. And so they would lean much deeper into F1 or cricket, respectively, or soccer, yeah, and then their metrics of who India follows, for example, if you took cricket, um, matter way more than globally the followership of a particular cricket player, and so therefore their answer might be completely different from ESPN's. That's why I was always shocked that Netflix. I mean, I'm sure you have an opinion; everyone has an opinion on this, but not only did they not get into live sports, like they could have done that first and foremost before everyone else. And and to me, it was it was 
fairly obvious, right? Because the cable bundle is dependent on two things. It's, it's live sports and live news, right? It's basically the only things that are currently holding it up. And Netflix had not only the capital, but they should have had the willingness to go and actually invest in live sports. And to your point, Formula One seemed like the perfect damn thing to go do it for because specifically here in the United States, the rights, they gave them away to, to ESPN, right? Now they're paying like five or seven million bucks a year, but they literally gave them away at first. They were just, hey, broadcast this to your audience and, and give us distribution. And Netflix not only already had that existing audience baked in from the content stuff they had done on Drive to Survive, but they had this massive distribution in the United States and they would have been the perfect partner because they could have paid and they would have had the distribution. It just seemed like a huge miss looking back because now not only has this competition arose where everyone's competing with these series is, and everyone's putting cash into it and everyone's spending, you know, X amount of money on, on uh, original productions, but also they're all getting into live sports now, right? We had Apple deal with MLS yesterday. They obviously did baseball and now Amazon is doing NFL and it feels like it was a huge missed opportunity from someone that was, you know, right there early on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with, I mean, look, I, I can't argue with any of that logic. It makes complete sense to me. I mean, I, and I don't know what went into that decision or, or, or decision at the time. I, I can only think of consumer behavior type questions or concerns. Is it hard to build a tech stack? Uh, maybe you know the answer. Maybe you don't. Is it hard to build it for live sports? Like, is it hard to change? Like their model is obviously not dependent on live TV right now. Right. So you'd have to build that out. And it seems like Apple did it pretty easily. I don't know. I mean, they spun up baseball in a matter of months, it right. feels like, and, and others have done it also. So that's like one of the reasons in my mind that I, I feel like it may be difficult because you, you're, you're basically taking away your core business and now you're attacking something else that requires some kind of build out. But I can't imagine it's that difficult for a company the size of Netflix. I don't know the production details, so I, I don't know if that tech stack piece is, is, is significant or not, but I, but I do know it would be a different team. And so then now you're talking about it totally different skill set when it comes to producers and, and everything from on air to off air. And that could have been part of the decision-making to your point itself. I mean, th they've been famous if, you, if you've read, you know, Reed Hastings book and so it, for, for the degree of focus, right. Of it, how much they've stayed away from anything that wasn't the core. And so that's probably plays into it too, but, but you're right. I mean, look, it's, it's, it's coming, it's coming now for sure. And by the way, I think it also is coming it's going to increase what drive to survive has, has helped do with F1 is I think it's going to increasingly come for more and more niche sports over time too, because it's been proven that that audience, that passion is there and you know, passion usually equals some version of willingness to pay. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I totally agree. And, and we're already seeing it to some degree. I think that I'm blanking on the name right now, the production company that does box to box. Yeah. yeah box to box. Yeah. I think they're doing tennis now they're doing the PGA and they're doing the, maybe cycling or the tour de France. Right. So right. they're obviously venturing out now and yeah. they proved it with one model and they'll try to do it with others. And I'm sure other people are sitting there. Hey, you know, we, I always point back to the UFC with ultimate, the ultimate fighter. Like that was kind of like the OG show when it came to a lot of the stuff of Dana White, I, I give him a lot of credit for that. He probably doesn't get enough from other people because that was really one of the first ones that put this like kind of reality show concept around the sport. It was very important for them. It felt like because the sport was so violent and everyone was like, these guys are animals, you know, they, they don't, no one's going to watch this. And it made them feel obviously more human and stuff, but the NFL has obviously done it for a long time. So I agree. I think it's only going to become more prominent, but I would be, go ahead. I was gonna say the insight there, by the way, that I've learned is the U.S. didn't really have a big F1 following. And therefore, those who watched Drive Surprise didn't really know the outcome of that sport while they were watching the series, even though it was X months later. And so if you start to extrapolate yeah. that for other sports that people may not follow as closely, that combination turns into really some interesting opportunity. People know who won the Super Bowl, but people 
a lot of the U.S. at least audience didn't know who was going to win at the end of the year at F1. So, so it's a, it's an interesting combination. Again, it goes back to the niche sport. Well, and they they do an incredible job of of mixing everything up and and stirring around the pot and and making yeah, sure that right. you almost get confused to some degree because they're they're switching to different races and then they're scenes from other places and they do a really good job. I'll just leave it at that of, of producing it and making it look good. So. I think that's been a huge part, but yeah. I, I do have to ask, The Last Dance was obviously very popular. A lot of people loved it. Many people loved it. I think most people loved it. Some people complained that they thought it was just a, a puff piece or a kind of a, a, a promotional piece for Michael Jordan and, and kind of him having editorial cuts and everything like that was a part of it, I think. Did Tom have final cut on Man in the Arena? <laughs> well, <laughs> he, he definitely was influential in a lot of it. And I will say the one thing that he got super into, and, and look, he watched the cuts. He has notes. He has opinions. I would say 90% of the notes and opinions went to shit. Let's talk more about the team because it, it goes back to the whole thing. It was just like, I don't want this to be just a, it is a Tom Brady documentary. That did come out though. I did feel that. Yeah. I did feel yeah. that a lot of it was about other people, right? The team, the coaches, the players around him. So I, 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 I can see that because I, I felt that when watching. I mean, and as all of us age, I think he now cares far less about, oh, did I look okay in that cut or whatever? How did I come across and how's XYZ going to think about it? So I think that part, you know, just comes with age and maturity and comfort in his own skin and all of our own skin. But this other part of like, yeah, <laughs> did I end up saying the right things because around the people that mattered that I want to show gratitude towards is where there's real influence and you know create stress for our team too because now you got to repackage things together to to pull in the right things but i mean in some ways it's again if this whole the whole thing around every 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 story is different this was all about tom's point of view so that makes it slightly different from you know in theory the last dance was a combo michael obviously was the center he was talking about everything but when you went back and you shot tons of archive across a season that was documented. That's that, you know, you could talk a little bit more about, you know, what should be objective, what shouldn't. Yeah. I think that makes sense. It's interesting too. Like there's probably no right answer. I think everyone is going to be, you know, acting differently and treated differently in those situations, but it it certainly feels like he, he put in the effort to make sure everyone around him was appreciated, which is nice. But the other question is, is Texas football back or not? (laughs) Uh, I, I, for for people who are just listening, Amith has the the Texas Longhorn logo behind his head here. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm a huge huge Longhorn fan. I you know have taken endless crap from m- many friends after Sam Ellinger announced after the Sugar Bowl. I went to the Texas USC Rose Bowl years ago, and so that was my last celebratory, true celebratory moment of of the Longhorns. So I won't say we're back. I, I won't say that until. Wait, the, the the game in whatever year with Vince yeah. Young? Yeah, yeah. Oh, no way. That must have been amazing. Yeah, it was. It was amazing. Yeah. But that said, I mean, no, we're not back yet until until I see it on the field. I'm really excited. Quinn Ewers, Xavier Worthy, Bijan. It's hey, game. it looks good on paper. That's a, that's a start. That's how it looks good on paper. I that's hope so. Yeah. I love it, man. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Where can I send people to go find out more, either from you or, or what religion of sport is working on? Yeah, religionofsports.com is easy. It has all our content categorized by video, audio, and so forth. And then all of our social channels are some version of that religion of sports, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and so forth. But yeah, I'd love 
for your audience to check it out and, and reach out if there, if there are opportunities to work together on individual projects or otherwise partnerships and so forth. Thank you for the opportunity. It was great talking to you. Of course. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.